Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jan Peters. Um, I do research on well, learning for robots and especially skill learning for robots. And we're interested in everything which is about well, complex motor skills that humans take a long time to acquire and which, well, therefore also kind of nice benchmark tasks or well, nice tasks to study um, for robots. Mm-hmm. And we've been developing machine learning methods specifically for physical systems for nearly two decades now. Great. So I would like to go back uh, when you were a child. Do you have any memories about uh, interest in robots or intelligence system that trigger interest for where we are today? So <laughs> I actually had this idea when I was a kid that um, you should um, just have a big catalog or everything you would like to buy. You could pinch it into the phone and then there would be a robot coming and deliver it to you. And I told it to my dad and my dad said, ah, it's never gonna, it, this is never gonna be, be accepted by human beings because humans love to be in the stores and um, have the human touch. Now we don't have the robot, but mm. we have this kind of delivery service by Amazon. So I still hope that my specific part of that vision is gonna become true. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So your dad was involved in engineering or something? My dad was a physicist, basically, okay. or, and um, he, yeah, he basically did plasma physics mm-hmm. for particle sources. But I was kind of lucky because he brought a computer back home, back already in the 1980s, um, where, the, um, where I had well, very early on exposure to... Um, well, like with six years old, I had exposure to, uh, uh, in the 1980s to well, yeah. quite some beautiful computers already. Yeah. And well, most of my friends had, I don't know, like C64 or such kind of computers. I actually had, we was, I was allowed to work with some Apollo workstations uh, for Hewlett Packard, which was a different, but very different kind of computing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I would like to go back. What is the first machine learning system or robot you built? Because you had your bachelor's in machine learning artificial intelligence. So do you remember what is the first system you built? So oh, so I, 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 there was a lot of things which I never finished. Uh, long before the lawnmower robots came in fashion, I tried to build one. I unfortunately never finished it. Um, the then basically, well, I did a lot of things with the little robot arms, which we created uh, using well, uh, well, very, very simple little plastic elements from Fisher Price. And then at some point I learned how to do machining and I built a quadrupad with point feet and uh, well, actually passive dynamics design as I know now know what they're being called. But back then it was just the simple part that I didn't want to uh, do gravity compensation all the time, so I got a lot of springs and dam- er, springs mm-hmm. in there, and um, built the whole system in such a way that it would be well stable already. 
and so that it would only you would only have to uh, make it move um, by with the motors and then I created some muscle based designs and I got into learning actually also I was got, getting interested in learning also really really early initially completely disconnected from my interest in robotics since um, I basically well obviously I wanted to, ex to predict the stock exchange every machine learning person in the universe tried at least once in their life and I back then you couldn't download it from the internet so I was actually typing around I don't know 92 I was typing daily stock exchange uh, numbers into my computer and I was running a neural network back then on trying to predict and well it, it actually discovered some of the rules which you you find in in the um, stock analysis since um, they, they have these very very primitive um, heuristics which they frequently use um, it's called chart analysis and some of these immediately fall out of the neural network when you're trying to use it for prediction and so the like that certain average lines when they're being broken you should buy or when you have a w scheme then well, it's a good point to buy or an M scheme, it's a good time to sell and such kind of things. Mm -hmm. But um, it was so painful to insert all the stock, uh, to enter all the stocks that um, this and well, then I entered college, that, that this and also the looking into what they have to study during their um, lectures that I was totally getting uninterested in um the business side of things and well completely became an academic over this that's interesting yeah. yeah so i'm curious to ask you since you have a lot of robots in design in your lab what is the best definition for robotics a robot and if you can tell us and something you maybe imagine beyond the traditional definition we have already you have witnessed well, I, I, actually, my definition of, of robotics is is an inverse one. I, I would say that a computer is an amputated robot. And anytime you have a computer and it actually has sensors and actuators to act on the real world, well, that's a non-amputated robot, so a real robot. Mm -hmm. And um, so I... I I, I do. I do think we like the Japanese have in their in their charts always way more robots than we do in the West, because they well count more robots. But I think there are more machines as robots than we do. But I think they're actually counting the right way, and we are counting the wrong way. Mm. So why do you think this uh, we evaluate in the wrong way? The West or maybe different. What makes um, that definition? I think we, because we're we're just too overly focused on. Um, the commercial products which label themselves as robot and too little on um, that we should try to make every every machine as, as general as um, as can be so that we in the next iterations will become better at these things mm. and um, I mean all of these all of the knowledge we humans create typically accumulates and now when we build more and more specialized devices become be become better at exactly one task like um, we, for example we build a whole infrastructure for driving which is completely over focused on um, the 
which is completely over focused on the scenario of um, well um, bringing single persons as fast as possible to one set, one location to the other and like in, in Germany where we have the autobahns um, these are actually highways which even have a, a tilted angle so that you need to steer as little as possible and can drive as fast uh, well nearly as fast as possible there and um, that's totally different from I think what we should be doing, and that is figure out well transport general transportation concepts. So yeah, I, I would like to ask you what are the most misconception you have witnessed uh, when you work in robotic artificial intelligence, machine learning field specifically. Well, one of the biggest biggest misconceptions is is well, probably the biggest misconception is the one centering around what we can model and what we cannot model. Mm. And um, I think robotics has been super successful when it comes to, well, building systems that are super accurate. And uh, so we I mean, look at industrial robots, you can you actually build them to be controlled so that you have, uh, well, 150 micrometers and we can really, we, they've really brought this to perfection. Right? There mm. wouldn't be any car manufacturing in Europe uh, if that hadn't been the case. And I guess the American cars would be even worse um, than they are now uh, if um, it wasn't for um, the if it wasn't for robots. And I guess the same holds some of, uh, the same as for German car good cars holds for Japanese cars. Mm-hmm. And um, so getting Great, getting great models has brought us in, has incredibly far. Having good control and building robots to be controlled in models have brought, has brought us this very, very far robotics. So we have the here the but that has resulted to the robotics fallacy that we generically think that we can well accomplish everything by building robots to be modeled and controlled, and not to build the best possible robot. I think that's that's one mm. big fault honestly from the robotic misconception from the robotics point of view that um, we keep following that direction. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, the the machine learning community, which initially was super uninterested in robotics, so it was very, very I, initially when I started out my career here as first as uh, well, master student, PhD student, and then as a postdoc. Uh, um, people were like, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, machine learning guys were, were like, okay, it's nice that you apply our stuff in robotics, basically. They were totally derogatory. And the robotics guys said, oh, we can model everything. It was a really hard standing we, we had mm. back then, the robot learning people. And um, so that was around 2000, up to maybe 2010, 2012, roughly. Mm-hmm. And that has now massively changed, but that also is completely overswung. And because uh, it's right now, this is run into the opposite fallacy and pretty much the fallacy that, well, if we just generate enough data, well, this data will allow us to automatically create, well, systems that, um, that can accomplish anything. And, um, and, um, that and, and when you now well 
make people aware of this. So if you look at Google, uh, for example, with Google, they've really created well, years of, of robot data with the farms of robots accomplishing the same task over and over and over again. This and still this massive data set doesn't seem to generalize is very well to any, well, you know, even among the tasks they have, leave alone to other tasks. And you need gigantic amounts of computing power. So you're running into a big wall there. And it gets even worse that um, now when you talk and you now that the machine learning community has fully picked up and is interested in robotics and in robot learning, mm -hmm. they basically have um, completely moved to the mood of saying, oh, well, we, we don't need lots of data to learn, so we're just using simulators in order to create the data. But that's like throwing the baby out with the water. I, I think you said very interesting point for modeling. That's very important point. And later on, you, you mentioned simulation to generate the data. I would like to ask you first, why modeling is it so challenging when it comes to environment, physical system with environment? Why is it so challenging? And how we can better understand um, right descriptive model that can also not be expensive in computation? That's first question. So basically, there are several components here. One is, well, we don't have the physical insight at all levels. Mm -hmm. So like if you want to have very complex actuators, like for example, the muscles, you need to make simplistic models. And um, well, in order, or in order to have these simplistic models to become useful well they need to be sufficiently accurate and well all models are wrong some are useful mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes we don't actually have the sensing even to make the use the models which are sufficiently accurate then useful in practice so that's something we, we need to factor in the second problem is that you can't actually even we don't even understand every single physical thing well enough that we can create models that really reflect reality. Mm. I'll give you a very simple example. If you really wanted to do in friction in macroscopic mechanics, we don't fully understand what friction is. Since we're talking here about set valued functions, um, but if you and we on, the only thing we can say about these set valued functions is that they typically act in the null space of the constraint forces and that alone already shows you in in, in what complexity the, these um in what uh, complexity we're living here mm -hmm. so it may be actually impossible to get something which is both physically accurate and well even, which even well, maybe impossible even to create, first of all, a model in the first case, which is from higher first principle. Mm -hmm. And even worse, it may be impossible to get something which is physically accurate, while at the same time being the being modeled in such a way that you have sufficient sensing, and that you can build even sufficient sensing, and can make it useful in real time. Yeah. That's something we, we have to accept. And, and we probably have to live with it. So that and it really brings up this big question of um well how what is the level of planning uh, sorry that's the level of modeling that we need exactly. in order to get a level of planning which allows us to accomplish our tasks mm -hmm. 
and for very static tasks, um, that's somewhat straightforward. But for very dynamic tasks or tasks which make and break contact all the time, it probably can be arbitrarily hard. And um, we definitely will need more data-driven approaches, which work much closer to the, well, on the real world physical data and much less on the well, models from first order principle. Okay, that's a very interesting point. And I would like to ask you, since you said, for example, we don't exactly understand how friction works in the physical world. Do you think for the level of the modeling, do you think we have to combine a continuum level with microscopic level to get some insights for better understanding? For example, when, when you, for example, you mentioned simulation to reality, mm -hmm. do you think when you do that and you want to, you were in this debate and you want to close this gap, do you, when you do that, what is the most important parameter do you think, oh, that's a very important parameter we have to replicate in simulation so that it can maybe matching 90% what's happening in physical system in reality? So I don't think we should go for a microscopic, macroscopic approach. What I think is we should go for a white box, black box, or basically a gray box approach mm -hmm. where we combine physical insight wherever we can have useful physical insight, um, like, for example, all the macroscopic forces we understand, with, together with black box um, prediction systems that hopefully just operate on limited subsystems. So, for example, friction should be limited in terms of uh, both the, the degrees of freedom, which it directly affects, and at the same time, it probably includes more time steps or more derivatives, depending on how you do your modeling, than what a physical model would actually consider here. Um, mm -hmm. And it may even be, yeah, may even be discontinuous at times. It's just because it would be more rough model than anything that totally hundred percent would describe reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and we may even need different state variables here. So yeah. state variables, which are actually probabilities, maybe rather than the, um, the actual state, uh, the actual amount of friction, we could use a probability as a membership function, mm -hmm. which would resolve this whole problem about modeling friction, for example. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So maybe me also student listening to that, and maybe the question when you design the robot, what is the most challenging mm -hmm. part in modeling? And, when you just draft an equation to describe the physics, what is the real challenge for you when you're doing that with your team for design? Okay, so I've, I've, done very, I've designed very few robots in my life. I think yeah. we're getting here to the, the wrong corner, uh, but uh, the, well, in my life as a professor at least, is in my life as a student that's uh, undergraduate student, that's a different story. Um, but my um, well, one robot which we, we designed together, which I first came up with, and which Dieter Büchler, my PhD student, recently perfected, is a robot to play table tennis, where we really decided we throw out everything about classical robotics. And um, we don't care that you can't actually model this robot. In fact, we, we, we built it in such a way that we did from a classical control perspective, everything wrong. So we made it in such a way that feedback control would be kind of useless because we are 
we were having a primatic actuator, a very nonlinear one, the festo muscles in an antagonistic design in acting on a very lightweight robot where, um, which was cable-driven, so the major forces in there were completely friction in the mechanics, and all the muscles were in the shoulders, so that the moving parts in the end, and so the moving parts of the robot, not of the actuator, were in the end about, well, 500 gram, and we just simply focused on, well, how can we create the maximum acceleration with this robot mm -hmm. so that we can redo really, really good table tennis sits? And how can we have it that this robot is typically compliant so that if it hits the environment, it isn't directly broken so that you can do crazy exploration as well. And then after building that robot, I mean, that, that, in, that started, in fact, um, the first version of that robot I built 10 years ago, and then Dieter started his PhD um, five years ago, and, and he has graduated last year with it, and he perfected the robot. And then we basically did learning on it, and we really went, he decided for, okay, we simulate, so we use models wherever you can do it. So what can be actually model still in, if you have a robot which you can't model, or we can only the model the geometry, so the kinematics, and therefore we can actually play against the simulated ball. So we trained the robot to play against the simulated ball for about 14 hours. So the robot is to, had to, was initially moving around with just motor babbling crazily through the environment. And after 14 hours, it would play back the simulated ball quite perfectly. And after another 20 minutes of training against the real ball, it produced better robot table tennis than we could have we were able to do before with the Barrett Wham robot. Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, it's obviously natural. The Barrett Wham robot has a two kilogram wrist and more than 20 kilograms of moving mass altogether. So it, it's a very, very heavy robot. Um, but it's also built for well, accuracy, for beautiful force creation, for being controllable. Uh, both in, well, in, in, in all the advanced fashions. And it's definitely not built to, well, play table tennis and to be high performance in it. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I think this, this table tennis, uh, soft, soft um, actuated, lightweight robot uh, uh, scenario really highlights what I think is important in, in future robotics. Well, what we can model, we should always model, like the ball mm -hmm. uh, or let's say the kinematics of the robot, since geometry is in the end easy and while well, the ball in flight, um, the table tennis ball in flight is still a relatively simple thing to model. So that is kind of straightforward. But anything we should be built, we should try to build it for the maximum performance. And that will typically throw out uh, most of the modeling and then we should additionally build it not just for maximum performance but actually for being useful even when you well hit your environment when you do something crazy when you you want to be safe to a human being but even safe to the robot the robot being safe to itself so we have to build everything very lightweight and very compliant in addition mm -hmm. and but that's also the best um, circumstances that we can have 
for actually trying things on the real robot mm -hmm. and for learning things on the real robot and any kind of learning we should do we that needs to be done on real systems and um, that's more important than anything else mm -hmm. and that is the so these are basically the the three most important lessons i think yeah that's super interesting i would like to go back to blind when you say the maximum performance and especially when mm -hmm. coming to soft robotics sometimes it's a challenging that you have high performance with a fast response and it's challenged to have there's a trade-off between the high performance mechanical maximum mechanical performance and fast response mm -hmm. and taking account the morphology of the the muscle of the or soft robot how you can and taking account also safety as you say you want a safety factor here so how you can see the trade-off between these four elements to design a uh, soft robot or, for example, scenario muscle for... for so I think for what's very important for fast response is that you don't do feedback response. So you, mm. I mean, feedback response only happens when you're ready, when the event which requires a response has already happened. You, we need to become much more predictive. And, Humans are incredibly good at prediction in the end. Um, there's a reason, I mean, we have such long delays, we wouldn't be able to do anything without our ability to predict things. Like, uh, let's say you hold an object in your hand. Um, if you weren't able of actually predicting the onset of slip and counteracting it, then you would have no possibility, for example, to. Um, you would have no possibilities just to do this by feedback because when it just going a signal going from your hand to mm. the brain is 80 milliseconds going back is another 80 milliseconds and then 160 milliseconds the object has long escaped your hand um, or has long started to move too fast so it's not we, we can't do this by feedback control we quite clearly do need um, it to predict and for table tennis um, for example, it's it's even more straightforward. Mm. We have one, in the end, we want to predict the ball that we want to hit in the air. So that basically means we need to predict a good trajectory for hitting it. But if you just want to hit a point, well, then we would again have to be very accurate about that point it's on. So what should we do instead? Well, we should actually predict something which is robust. So for example, a trajectory which maximally overlays um, a record trajectory which maximally overlays with the ball trajectory and which is done in such a way that you're decelerating while you're actually hitting the ball in which case you get this very very robust response and surprisingly a response which is much much better than anything you can do by control and, and very accurate future trajectory planning since even the inaccuracies you have when you when you don't have uh, when you're not going for the robust scenario, mm -hmm. you know, they can already kill you in that, uh, in that domain. And mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a very important lesson. Um, in muscle-based design, I do think using antag antagonistic actuation and then relaxing one muscle while having the other one and still stiff, for example, gives you, uh, gives you a very, very robust response. On the one hand, you're getting very high accelerations out of it, since you have kind of the measure of a catapult. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you're now hitting the environment, 
then in this case you you basically you also have a relatively safe interaction again and um, since you don't have so much energy stored in, in kinetic motion but much more just in the well, contraction of the muscle which um, hasn't fully happened yet so you're you're getting a much more stable you're getting a much you're getting a much less dangerous interaction with the environment mm -hmm. i think it's also interesting now the trend about using multi-layer materials one stiff and one compliant to make this actuation. Yes. I think that's an interesting area for research as well. But you mentioned learning. Absolutely. Yeah, but you mentioned mm -hmm. learning will, should be only in real world. I think that's one of the debates that, why do you think that we can do learning and simulation before going to the real world? If you can. I don't, I mean, we do learning and simulation, of course, for debugging purposes. You'll never start um, point blank and have the system um, have not at least tried can we learn in, in simulation before um, and quite frequently we try the policies from simulation right away on the robot and keep um, and start learning from there but um, I personally don't think that learning methods generically are even that good at well planning task generation and so on in the end, um, in the end, if you have models that are super accurate, mm. you don't need learning because then you can actually, but if they are super accurate and you can handle them, you yeah. can actually use planning methods. And the idea of um, well, um, sample-based planning methods that's been around much longer than learning. And the power of learning really only starts when. You in when you have well data from the real world, and you want to incorporate this with as few steps as possible. That's a very different uh, world than what people currently imagine. It's currently much of the learning and simulation. Uh, many of the learning and simulation people will simply say, "Oh, let's do sim to real." Do it as a very, very. Uh, um, it'll pose problem of, of learning and simulation and expecting it to run on the real system. In many cases, they either don't have a real system, so it's sim to null, as Ken Goldberg likes to call it, um, where we are, where they just well, where they never try it on the real system. And of course, I can learn anything in simulations, mm -hmm. and um, that's what people recognized already 40, 30, 40 years ago when Rodney Brooks ran around. And, told everybody simulations don't count uh, since I can do anything in simulation mm -hmm. the, but in simulation well, planning works and it's not that hard to do planning in, in the end if you simplify your kinematics by a few steps mm -hmm. it's um, planning is a very very doable thing and we are even making substantial progress in, in recent years on, um, on, on doing, well, doing even analytical solutions for the pre-specified or simpler pre-specified kinematics, which in the end will enable planning to come very, very far and to solve the optimization problems without a sing uh, involved in planning without 
a single time going into to the learning scenario. And learning won't help us in that scenario a lot. Because mm -hmm. in the end, we, all we get is, well, maybe some small improvements on, um, well, let's say the, the on, on the kinematics, not on the kinematics, on the dynamics, when you have friction in models, which you can replace now by learned friction models. And yes, here and there, you can add a little bell, but that's not going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. It's what really makes the difference is actually figuring out responses that generalize, which are robust towards the things we don't anticipate. Mm -hmm. So things we, we, our modeling assumptions did not incorporate. It, and that may include well, actuator components, which we didn't foresee, the part that we didn't foresee how the interleaving of different sampling frequencies gives us very, very different um, responses is on, so like, let's say a table tennis ball, if you see that ball at 60 hertz, you act at 500 hertz, it's in terms of the motor commands, and each time you have a jitter in there, and you want to be robust towards these um, very different sampling frequencies, the different noise frequencies you have in there. And that may not, well, not doing that by filtering, well, filtering always introduces unnecessary delay, but rather by smart, well, robust heuristics, mm -hmm. that could in the end be the quest of learning. But these are things you, well, if you don't figure it out on the real data directly, well, figuring out on the model is not gonna uh, the simulator. It's just not gonna happen. Yeah, I'm curious to ask you this question: When we go to continuum of applying robots, sometimes mm -hmm. traditional control techniques doesn't really fit for the nonlinearities yes. of system, and, and sometimes it's quite destroyed when it comes to smart material, for example. But my question mm -hmm. to you: Do you th how we can enhance uh, or maybe come up with new um, control schemes based on the mm -hmm. morphology of the soft robot? Do you think we have to go for distributed control since the system highly nonlinear? And what could be the best approach so that we can have better control for uh, compliant robots? What do you mean? So I, I would actually go there as um, actually as distributed as we could do, mm -hmm. since um, to, since basically if you have some, I mean, things are only nonlinear. Really, really nonlinear, but we break them down on very, very few um, variables. So the one thing which which typically happens is if you um, if you go into a high enough space, high high dimensional enough space, everything becomes linear. That's one of the big lessons of machine learning of the 1990s that um, every problem becomes simple if you use a kernel that maps it into sufficiently high dimensions. And since there, the problem will be linear. And the same holds, of course, true, or especially the same actually, that holds true for perception action systems. So if you had many, many redundant actuators, like mm -hmm. the human arm typically has, it's, I mean, like look at the muscle fibers we have, uh, the, the many muscles we have in there, then our actuation is already largely linear. If you take the our sensing, our joint sensing, we don't have joint encoders as humans, we have skin. Mm -hmm. We actually do our joint decoding by skin. And um, again, this 
becomes actually a rather a nearly a linear operation from skin to to muscle, uh, which is very different from well angle to to torque, which is generically a nonlinear method. And so we we have a huge advantage. We could create a huge advantage if we use the technologies which are now arriving cameras which are so small and so cheap that we could build a lot of them into any um, into any actuator and just simply use use already light as an additional sensing variable uh, so whether to measure strain whether to measure uh, you know, so that you get forces or whether we can measure distances so that that if you have sufficiently many it's going to become um, suddenly a very different problem if you have an addition also actuation, which is well highly redundant, if you're really going from well highly redundant sensing to highly redundant actuation, then in between probably sits just a largely linear uh, system, which we can probably learn quite efficiently from data, but which none of us could actually still simulate in any realistic form. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, and I would like to ask you this question for nonlinearities because in soft mm -hmm. system for compliance, there's nonlinearities can bring opportunities, and other nonlinearities we, we want to get rid of. If I ask you, what do you think nonlinearities can can bring opportunities, and what nonlinearities we have to get rid of in soft robots? So, well, this is that's a complicated question, since and I mean in the end if in the end from uh, making systems do things most nonlinearities are in the end making things more difficult not mm -hmm. uh, not easier so the only ones we really well you, you, you typically only need them to counter another nonlinearity like um, well if you want to have a catapult like movement makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. to, to to have well, different um, but that's different kinds of linearities but that's only because we don't have the power to to do it in a, in a, in a linear fashion in the end so that's that's one way I, I could think about it but but if you were now about well finding the right way of actuating I doubt that um, I think we. I, I, well, um, I doubt that we we're just gonna live from the that we we're gonna get so much out of of well having nonlinearities. Mm -hmm. Avoiding them, on the other hand, um, well, nearly every problem becomes easier, from my understanding. Yeah. Just some become unsolvable if you don't mm -hmm. have nonlinearities. Yeah, I agree. So, if I ask you what is an area of direction, do you think very promising, but maybe the community seems to disagree or doesn't get much attention to it at the moment? I think we need to figure out um, at how to integrate sensing better into bodies. Mm -hmm. And um, that in includes the thing which, which I and especially in soft robotics, I think this is probably the key step all over. And and how to make much better use of such sensing. 
So if you, for example, had microphones in like really, really high accuracy microphones already 3D printed into the robots so that we could actually have all the vibrations of the system and then actually make sense of these vibrations. And maybe in addition to have cameras for uh, so that we have better, better spatial recognition of contact, such kind of things. And again, put millions of cameras into the body, like Chris Atkinson has already for, suggested for cameras. But and then come up with the sense of fusion concept that uses this really, really high frequency signal of the uh, microphones. Since microphones can give you your microphone arrays, if distributed over the whole robot body, um, can actually give you a very high high um, high frequency signals, a very fast signal, very and a very good temporal response. Like putting cameras, like Chris suggested, did all over the body. Um, well, it will give you a very good spatial understanding, but at a very slow pace. Mm -hmm. Combining then these two in the right way may actually give us the performance of a skin, of a, of a real skin, human skin, but also more insights on, well, how we're doing control and how good our actuation is working instead of just relying on, well, force torque sensors at the joints and uh, joint encoders. There's and maybe external cameras where we have to solve the really complex computer vision problems instead of a much more simple sensing problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, we may actually want to do one thing, one really do one thing, and that is try to avoid solving the vision problem um, and really just focus on the visual signals we need and not on the one on, on well, reconstructing the 3D world and planning in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. That's very important. But maybe ask you, do you think this is maybe, you think what could be the biggest technological roadblocks for robotics and short term and longer term? You, you mentioned something more about sensing. What could be else in the short term and longer term real challenge we have? So, I mean, one, well, the, 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 well, the challenges this are you know, of robotics are unlimited mm -hmm. uh, but it's, I mean on the one end we do need better bodies and mm. there's way too few people who can build robots in the first place there's even fewer people who are good building good at building good robots typically once people have found their one concept which to follow well they they will follow this this one road of, of building robots and um, there we there I think that's the one, the biggest first thing which we could do is to, to actually have more robots that we can leave, let into the world, which are cheap enough, which are safe enough, and um, which have sufficient well, sensing and actuation capabilities that they can do something useful. Since in the moment where we would, like, I don't know, have a million household robots in the world and people who are willing to pay for things, there would finally be an industry behind it. And um, we know how fast things go in the moment where, where, then, where they're scalable. But right now we're typically talking, well, isn't it about industrial robots or, the, or vacuum robots? Then we're, we're talking about, well, a handful of robots trying things. And 
we're not going to learn enough from these few handful of robots doing these tasks, and especially not if they're well so well, I mean, so over designed for specific tasks, like let's say industrial robots are for industrial operation. So I think that's, that's, that's one of the biggest issues. This um, biggest roadblocks. Then the next big roadblock for me is still, well, how are we going to describe all the tasks that we need? And there we again, back to my favorite domain of learning. We, I think what we really will need, we will need a lot of people who own robots, who do um, well demonstrations for imitation learning and um, demonstrate a large amount of tasks. And not necessarily such that we can learn all of these tasks and, by, and for all robots, but even just to identify and, and cluster and create a taxonomy of the tasks so that um, we, we can then create systems that can easily be taught in their actual environments. And then finally, well, I don't, still don't think that even if we have accomplished this, there's these two steps of having the right kind of robot and having, well, collected sufficiently many demonstrations of tasks, that'll still not be enough for the household robot. Mm -hmm. Maybe enough for the hospital robot or the surgery robots, but it'll not be enough for the household robots. I think in households, we still have to figure out how to, well, code our, in, uh, how, to, how to make our homes robot compatible. And um, that's, well, gonna be mm -hmm. another major step in here. Yeah, were there any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved otherwise? Mm -hmm. uh, I think in, so in machine learning, we've basically seen this many times that um, we, we were hoping on things being super promising and they becoming the big failure and also some things which were considered already big failures suddenly became super promising. If you look at the revolution of deep learning, which up to that said, well, a lot of people who oh, 10 years ago ran around and said like, oh no, neural networks totally useless, this terrible thing mm -hmm. to do, now run around and say, oh, deep learning, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, it's not not without reason that this um, that you uh, that you get this impression since they were dead. Neural networks, for example, were dead and were considered too complex, and then very 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 small changes made them suddenly feasible. And um, small changes like just a different activation element and well more layers turned out to be well game changers. Mm -hmm. And um, well, that was something which I somewhat felt coming when um, that this would actually really happen, but I um, but only at the onset, and the majority of the community definitely didn't feel it, and I didn't want to follow it because I had grown up in the time when your network were hit the last time before, and um, I I didn't wish for their return. And mm -hmm. at the same time they well they've been super powerful and that's there there i definitely predicted wrong since i thought that well i, did, I didn't think they would be that powerful um and i thought that probabilistic methods would 
very quickly pick up and and outdo them. So um, there have been well, they have success proved me wrong. Um, in terms of um, well, things where I thought they would go faster. Um, I think what I did expect is that uh, things like Gaussian processes and machine learning thing would actually become handleable, that they would figure out how to do Gaussian process regression for billions of data points at some point. And if that actually would have happened instead of the small data sets, which you can do with a Gaussian process, there would actually be today's um, silver bullet against every single uh, well, possibility mm -hmm. since, um, well, for 3000 data points or 6000 data points, where we're limited by metrics inversion, Gaussian processes um, still beat any Bayesian deep learning approach. And um, that's something which, well, isn't a very popular thing to say, but it's, it's a very simple fact. Yeah. And the sad part is that, well, GPs haven't scaled to that domain. And that was something which I didn't expect. I really thought that um, the right combination of Gaussian processes and um, and physical modeling would actually give us the power we would need in order for us to, to succeed in robotics, and at least for the modeling aspects of robotics. Yeah. Um, that was quite a quite a letdown that this didn't happen in that form. Mm -hmm. I think maybe Quick question here: How do you see the trade-off between the models and data? Do you think we? You said we have to go for the gray one, zoom. But do you think we have to go ahead black box model since it is extensively used in most robotics, and we don't know how it work? What's your take about that? So I think we need to find the right kind of gray box models. So mm -hmm. models that include all the physical insight that is useful, but not more than that. Okay. So, for example, you could do what my PhD student Michael Luther did. Um, he basically figured out how to put the right kind of insights about energy into a neural network and thereby could actually learn with a deep neural network very, very plausible physics functions, mm -hmm. which were substantially better than the handcrafted physics model. Yeah. But at the same time, um, beat also the standard neural network, which had no physics assumptions, because you would simply get things which are, well, which are even stable when used in a closed loop, and which you couldn't guarantee with a classical neural network that just learned a black box function. So figuring out what amount of principles from physics you can actually place into a machine learning method so that it's still that it is on the one hand still a powerful method but on the other hand um, is um, well sufficiently accurate to actually do something in, in the real world that is really the the key frontier mm -hmm. so gray box not black box not white box so neither the black box physics neural network nor the white box physical model. Mm -hmm. How can we ensure a diversity mm -hmm. of approaches, get exposure as they deserve and prevent an over investment in a limited set of techniques? 
Similarly, academics tend to establish strong beliefs about other fields that come off often as arrogance and elitism and discouraging exploration of ideas out of the mainstream. So, simply I'm asking how, how can we enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas? So, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I, I think that there is the, I mean, generically, we should try to slow things down again. Mm. Since right now, um, people are too quickly flocking around ideas simply because the speed of, um, of science has become way too fast. And um, but I think it would, would really, really help is if we could even um, could, could even desynchronize, so that not uh, it's it's not so much anymore about that everybody wants to be present in all the top conferences, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but much rather that we really go back to uh, to a system like we used to have when you look back more than 60, 70 years, when people just published way fewer of their ideas. And therefore, com competing ideas could survive much longer um, and uh, would be tested much stronger against each other. Um, like even if you look at the early days of AI, you had both the symbolic people who mm. came from planning and logic competing against the learning guys. Now, we consider the symbolic people dead today, um, but that's probably not a good thing. Since at some point, we will need symbols again. Mm. It's not clear when, and um, having completely killed their um, community, we have also killed their insights. And we may need to recover or to rediscover everything they did. So, by, but by slowing things down and not making everything about top conferences, um, we may have a big advantage and if we I would actually do the following I would say we limit the number of papers that we, anybody can publish in their lifetime mm. so you really try to uh, say that well the top conferences they will only accept so and so many papers in your lifetime which have your name on it and well I don't think anybody has more than let's say 20 great ideas in their life uh, um, if there are people running around and have 20 NIPS papers per year, and they're not quite that many, but they're like people who have 10 NIPS papers per year, well, you, you already recognize that these can't be 10 great ideas, since otherwise they would be shelling, well, would be running out of the 20 great ideas of their life very, very fast. Mm -hmm. So the only reason why they um, have so many papers is either because, well, the incremental ideas in there or because they have a lot of people who work for them and who just well, create the ideas for them. Later is very, very hard to believe. Um, and um, I mean, not that they have a lot of people, but that they all have created ideas. And so in the end, a lot of incremental stuff becomes much more publishable because we're all running like a herd. But mm. if you as an established researcher, we're actually forced to 
keep on the on the big picture, not on maximizing currency. And again, if you're as a junior researcher, well, really could focus on that one big idea instead of trying to make well five five um, quick incremental contributions. Well, then you would have a major advantage. And um, you know, there there are other fields where people are much more oriented about. Uh, figuring out big things like let's say in physics and they typically have just one journal paper or two journal papers from their PhD while like if you look at the typical computer scientists they shell out their three conference papers per year and that's just the sick way of um, doing science because well in the moment where they have finished one paper they have to start the next one and so we're ending with something which which Einstein at some point big time criticized. He said, "Well, if you're doing science by producing large amounts of paper, then you're a big paper trail. Then you're in the end not doing worthwhile science." Oh. I that's, think that's yeah. that's at the core of this. Yeah, that's uh, super competitiveness. Yeah, that's super important point, and we discuss that frequently in the podcast. And I would like to thank you for. Bring this point again. I, I would like to ask you first a question: What be consequences mm-hmm. behind this trend where we have to be fast and you have to publish as much as you can, and we move from the quality to quantity, and that's what we have. And secondly, who is a key player for this for encouraging this behavior? Is it the employer? Is it a maybe funding agency, or how how we can make a collective movement against this trend that we have in academia in general? So the the second question, who's who's the culprit? I would say at the moment it's actually industry which is the key culprit, because people get jobs for well having written papers, and people get hired in industry now to write academic papers, and mm. that's gonna be that, that that culprit though is gonna die by itself, since industry at some point will figure out well people who write papers, well, they don't create products and they, in the end, will not help the company on the long run. Mm-hmm. So a few companies can maybe able to afford it still for a longer term, like, I don't know, let's say Google and so on, but the majority of them will sooner or later stop um, about writing papers. And there was a time when, you know, when in natural language processing, in Google, they also wrote lots of papers, and then they suddenly stopped and became more and more silent around the people um, because they, well, were more focused on what actually made money for um, mm. them and much less on competing with, uh, well, competing thing with academia. And well, papers weren't so much of a, um, a hiring factor as it is right now. So I think that's. The problem of um, of it being a part of the hiring factor that's gonna be disappearing in at some point eventually. But it's it may still take another couple of years, two or three years. Mm-hmm. But um, at some point, companies will become sane again, and this create this this is it's just gonna go the same way as the um, well all of the the other speculation hypes. Yeah. I think so. There, there. I'm not too worried. Mm-hmm. 
Can you bring it back to your first part of the question? Yeah, the consequences behind this, we move from... The consequences. Qu yeah, from qu um, quality to quantity. Yeah. Yes, I think the, the consequences for how it has changed our undergrads is are tremendous, right? I mean, like, when I became a... When I applied for grad school um, 20 years ago, I basically, well, I had some publications already, and that was pretty much the exception. But mm. the interesting thing is the professors actually didn't care too much about that, since um, they actually reckoned back then it was like, okay, if he has some publications, well, that's um, it's fine, but uh, my that just means he had a good advisor um, with whom he had worked, or so they, they gave a lot of credit to other things. Um, instead of and instead what they looked at was the you know, the research statement for example and on how you could actually argue what you would like to do in your life what motivation you have for your your phd uh, well what are the problems you really want to solve and how good a case can you make for these and that's actually a much more sensible approach since and if you can sell a good vision then this typically means you've really, really thought about it. And if this vision sounds like something people have read many, many times, well, then you're automatically boring. Mm. Well, if you're, you're trying to sell a paper, well, you, you get a ton of people who, you know, every, I get every week now applicants who say, oh, we have applied deep reinforcement learning on this robot simulator. And I'm like, okay, hmm, yeah, fine, it's great. But uh, what do you want to do? And, you, and if I want to see experience, I would rather know real robot experience and have you actually tweaked the system for real and not just some simulator or mm. something like this. And that's not very easy to get into a paper, right? I think in the moment where you're building a system and, and really learning how to do a system, that's much, much harder than, well, writing a little bit of text and getting it published. I can't agree more with you. I can't agree more with that. I think that maybe the question I was asking, how we can ensure the robots we develop will go and be beneficial to community. And that's a question asked by many students even for, from underrepresented uh, students, uh, for their communities. H how we can ensure the technology we have at the end of the day impact our communities or robots we develop in, in our lab. I think that's something very important that you mentioned. And I agree with that, yeah. Yes. And that's actually one of the hardest things of all because it's so unpredictable yeah. what our the technologies we create will actually do. It's kind of a little bit like the the magician's apprentice, mm -hmm. um, you know, this famous poem of, 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 of the poet Goethe, um, that in the end when when you um, when you do that at some point, things will be used. Whether they will be used for good or for bad, mm. it's very, very hard to control. Yeah. And uh, so even some efforts when you do try to do things for good, like moving nuclear power away from bombs and towards nuclear power stations, it can go awfully wrong, as we have seen. But at the same time, preventing technologies is probably even more stupid. So it would actually be, uh, since when you prevent technologies, well, it would probably just mean that some person does it, 
just imagine if it had been the Axis instead of the Allies who had had nuclear bombs first. It's just super scary, right? Yeah. So if Roosevelt had said no to building nuclear bombs and Hitler hadn't been scared of nuclear bombs, well, things may have gone, gone the total opposite way. And, well, I don't want to imagine the world we would be living in. And uh, so totally, uh, so withholding ideas only works if even the bad guys would do it. So just and if you do it in a, say it in a very American way. And who are the bad guys? Well, you never know who are the bad guys since it's typically also something which is only decided as an after after yeah. it happens. And, yeah. and you look at, at how people from the 1930s well, viewed developments in Germany, they were actually not that negative uh, about it. It was only an afterthought that they all realized how terrible things were, yeah. um, had happened. So it's very hard. Sometimes, sometimes good people, and, and then again, also, what did all the civilians uh, who had to suffer from it? Uh, yeah, it's very hard. You can only, with the, with the hindsight, say, make any statements about such politics. So it's with other words what we should try is to to discover the technologies and then once they're there we need to hope for responsible politicians exactly moving them into and, and responsible company yeah. leaders moving them into the right directions but if we as scientists try to prevent them we may be doing more harm than good yeah since uh, well, i can't agree with that yeah yeah. That's very important to be concerned. Yeah. Um, do, do you think ego is important for the researcher? I think ego, ego is very, very important. Uh, mm -hmm. That the right kind of ego. So the, I mean, on the one hand, as researchers, we have to be in love with an idea. And we have to follow this idea. Mm -hmm. And this means we have to lie to ourselves about the importance of this idea. And the importance of, well, what we're sacrificing there. And um, you can't do a PhD if you don't believe in the topic. I mean, Martin Riedmüller at some point told me that he had asked um, the thing, the neurally fitted cue learning, which later became DQN, um, that he had actually suggested that as an algorithm to, well, um, for a PhD thesis, for master's thesis, to a number of students. And a number of students tried and all came back and said, oh, this will never work, we've tried. Mm -hmm. And then at some point he was so frustrated that he wrote himself and he really believed in it and he spent a year of his life to really perfect it, but he actually made it work. And I mean, you, you've seen the successes coming out of these algorithms from as a deep mind. And um, so you need to first believe in the algorithm or in the venture or, well, if you go 100 years back, you have to believe into that you want to build a car even when everybody's laughing at you or a plane. Mm. You know, and, um, none of the famous engineers or scientists has gotten there without, well, lying to themselves and believing that they are, what they're doing is so important that it was more important than anything else in life. Yeah. And uh, that's the type of, well, that's, I think, ego at its strongest, right? Yeah, I so, can't agree uh, more. You have to believe in yeah. yourself, yeah. Yes. In, in, in your ideas, especially. 
Yeah. So not just in your, your the importance. I mean, ego is of course about believing in yourself, and but it's it's also about the you and your ideas that mm -hmm. they're gonna make a huge difference. Yeah. And there are also totally negative forms of ego, of but uh, which can stifle science. Like if you if um, an older guy believes that his ideas from the past um, should are more important than anything from the present. Um, or from the future, then this is obviously also super dangerous. Mm -hmm. yes, and you need to protect, well, young scientists from the egos of old scientists. Yeah. And that has always been the case, right? I mean, Max Planck at some point said, um, we, I, I have never managed to persuade any of my critics. Luckily, they all died one by one. Uh, since they were all like older scientists yeah. who simply did not want to believe well, the, in, into quantum physics, for example. Yeah. That's scary. I, I'm, I'm curious to ask you because we have two questions left. One, one of them, then you say that we live maybe in ego driven community a little bit. As you are mm -hmm. a mentor, I, I see you can care a lot about your BHU student and your student as well. What is a good quality? Uh, for mentorship between the mentor and mentee, what makes this successful from your experience? Oh, this is this is a time variant thing. It really is also career and life stage variant mm. in things. So it's um, so when I started my PhD, uh, sorry, when I started no, when I started my PhD, I had a really great advisor, and then well, he became a father, and he didn't have as much time. He was still a great advisor, but he became very different. Mm -hmm. And since he simply didn't have enough time for his lab, his students, and he was up for tenure, it became much, much tougher uh, for, uh, to interact. And it made me, on the other hand, much more independent. Yeah. And um, now when I look at my own advising, I kind of see these stages now too. So my first couple of PhD students I had when I was on the German comparable of tenure tracks, since in Germany, uh, back in Back in the days, there were very, very few tenure track positions. So you would basically have a research group at some place, and then you would get tenure later at another place. Hmm. And I had this research group at Max Planck, where Jens Kober was part of, yeah. and Katharina Mülling, and Oliver Krömer. And we were, we were really, well, I was really advising these guys at the tightest possible level. Hmm. And we were in the same room, and... Um, we, I pushed all my knowledge right into their brains without, uh, well, giving them any, not giving them any risk of failure, even, since we, we mm. basically, we, we simply were, they basically got all my experience, all my knowledge, I was directly involved into every single step. Now, obviously, this all worked super, but it also meant that the, the students, um, well, once they graduated with their PhD, had a hard time recovering from it. So Katarina oh. Willing decided to change topics so that she really gets to explore something on her own first, which is something well, which actually looking back should have been in the center of the PhD. Mm -hmm. um, Jens actually for this postdoc, he, he first was very silent and he kind of needed to, uh, you know, recover from his PhD. Yeah. And uh, and Ali for Krömer, who's now professor at CMU, he joined me in going to Darmstadt, 
and he actually then took it as a center role for himself to well kind of become the well, phd the leading phd student among a group of phd students and then because i was building up this new group i had to get all the funding start teaching in big time everything which belongs to a big german group well i obviously had much much less time for my phd students and well, some of them got good, good supervision, thanks to, for example, Ali as an older PhD student, or to, thanks to some of our postdocs. Mm. But uh, many of them started to, well, swim much more freely, and some nearly drowned because I oh. well, didn't have so much time for them. But on the other hand, they also got much, much more, how to put this, they, they knew how to swim much better uh, at the end of the PhD than the first generation had yeah. uh, simply because they were much more challenged by getting the day-to-day -day, getting day-to-day -day, through day by day than the first generation had and now currently with the third generation of phd students from my lab i have the feeling we're getting it better and better because we we're putting in more of the supervision elements but um, we also have been doing more of the well we have, we're giving them much more freedom in the first generation mm -hmm. so cutting a long story short i think they're they're different nash equilibria one is you want to make the student as successful as possible and be as successful as possible yourself but probably the tightest possible supervision um, is the right way mm -hmm. you want to make the student as brilliant uh, in mind as possible well, you ideally want to make, be a very hands-off supervisor. Yeah, I would really so. like thank you. That this is really very informative and clear point about mentorship. Thanks so much for this operation. The last question is: What was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was a life changing for you? Oof, that is a difficult question. Um, I think one advice which Bernard Schulkopf um, gave me, um, it's it actually sounds best in German, so I'll first say it in German, then I will translate it. In German, it's nicht verbiegen. Mm -hmm. And it trans if you literally translate it, it means do not bend over. Mm. Um, it's a bit too strong in, in English, and, and also some, it misses some of the meanings in English, since basically, if you're so let's rather call it do not bend uh, since if you're bending too much as a scientist then you're losing authenticity and every time you're losing authenticity people will feel it and also your ideas are going to get worse by losing authenticity and that's why i think do not bend is really good advice yeah that's very powerful and meaningful yeah Thanks so much, Professor. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed it too. <laughs>